Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I am so excited for this week's guest, Kirk Kaiser. Kirk is a prolific hacker, educator, and author of a book that I'm really kind of excited to learn more about called Making Art with Python or Make Art with Python. Kirk, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Very excited to be here. So I like to start with all of my guests with what I call origin stories. I'd love to hear how you got your start and ended up where you are today. How did you first get interested in technology? When I was 12 years old, my family bought a computer and I found out that you could actually write software for a computer. A little bit while later, I discovered that things to write software for a computer cost hundreds of dollars and was out of reach. A kid who was 12 years old. And so one day I went to the bookstore and I saw a magazine with a Linux CD on it. And Linux was this magical operating system. It was Slackware 3.11 that just came with free games and free tools to build software. And so the idea that as a young person, you could build worlds got me hooked. So I immediately ruined the family computer, uninstalled Windows, tried to install Linux. It didn't work. I needed a custom CD-ROM driver in order to install it. So it took like a month and then I got Linux installed. And yeah, it's origin story, sure. That's awesome. So one of the things that I noticed when I was doing some background prep for this is that you talk a lot about art as a mechanism for getting people interested in coding. Yep. And similarly, like I also started on the family computer, breaking it and doing all sorts of weird stuff, but I wasn't particularly attracted to computer science. And so the idea of coding as art or art as coding has always kind of resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Now, at what point did you start to merge those two disciplines and come to that kind of like worldview? So I took this course in New York City at this place called GenSpace. And so GenSpace is a biohacking hackerspace. And so you can go there and learn how to genetically engineer organisms. And so I was taking this course there called the Biohacker Bootcamp. And I met some high schoolers who were building and competing in this competition called iGEM, International Genetically Engineered Machine Contest. And so these were literally the coolest high schoolers you could possibly hang out with. And so I was talking to them and I asked them what they thought about computer science, what they thought about development. And their basic reaction was that it's for jocks. Like, it's not cool. And it's for the overachievers. And it's for the jerks, basically. And that really shocked me because growing up, I always felt like an outsider. And I always felt like software development was an outsider's pursuit. But in between me being a kid and like the next generation, it somehow became like the socially forced thing to do. And so I knew that if that was the idea of software development, is that like, if you are ambitious, this is the thing you would pursue, it wouldn't have resonated with me. And so I set out to write a book, trying to speak to myself at that age. Why art? Like, do you have a background in different types of art? Is it your hobby? Like, how did you come to that angle on it? 
Yeah. So I think there's multiple things. So I think my family's background, my grandmother and my mother immigrated to the United States from Cuba at a very early age, and they were both dancers. And so I kind of had that home reference of what it's like to live with an artist in your family. But beyond that, I think that this idea that we need to optimize every portion of our lives and that we need to be strategic about everything that we do and that there's no room for fun or play. And so when I think of art, I'm not thinking of something that you kind of put up on a pedestal so much as I'm thinking of, man, it feels good to use a crayon and more of an experience of play than it is an experience of seriousness, I think. Kind of an anti-Silicon Valley mindset in a certain way. Hypothetically, yes. I mean, I get it. Like the thing that drew me into tech as a career was going to a lot of like early New York City tech events. And Mm -hmm. specifically, my first hackathon was this event called Music Hack Day. Which I don't know if you were around for that in New York, but like it was just this crazy gathering of all sorts of people. Like there were as many musicians as there were programmers and it kind of opened my eyes that it was more than an academic discipline and more than a career path, that yeah. it was actually something that people like were creative with in a novel way. Yeah, 100%. I had a boss when I moved to New York who actually was a adjunct professor at ITP, NYU ITP. And the stuff that the students out of ITP do is amazing. And it's always very much off the wall and ridiculous. And then years later, becomes a giant startup that dominated the market. Yeah, ITP is a really cool program. For anyone who's listening who hasn't heard of it, it's kind of, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's like an interdisciplinary tech and creative studies program. Like, how would you describe it? All I know is that when I meet people who are doing the ITP program or who have done it, they're always coming at technology from a different angle. And it's usually a refreshing angle and it's cool. That's awesome. So this book, Is this kind of the book that is for the next generation? Like, who's the audience for Make Art with Python? That's a good question. I think it's for people who want to take a different path in general. There's a lot of really great kind of, here is the structure for how you learn. And I think for myself, I needed a diversity. I needed like a whole ecosystem of ideas before I really started to get software development. And so I think like coming at a problem from multiple angles is what's really most important. And along with that, learning different models for execution. Like when you're doing the exercises in the book, you have this loop and every iteration of the loop, you change some variable within that loop and kind of gives you a single model for how programs execute. I think in general, though, the way I tend to learn is just by practicing. You build a thing, you change it, you break it, you figure out why it broke, iterate on that loop. And yes, hopefully it's a good starting off point to go in your own journey there. What do you think happened to diverge the tech world and the coder ethos from that? Because if you look back at the really early days of like hacker culture, that's all it's about. It's like tinkering and messing with stuff and creating cool stuff to show your friends, right? Yep. And I think there's a couple things. One is we just live in an incredibly competitive society in general. And so everybody, no matter what position they're in, no matter what place they're in, just feels the constant need to run to stay in place. 
And so it can feel like taking time to play is frivolous. And taking time to focus on a thing that isn't immediately productive, isn't immediately rewarding in the next step that comes, can feel like a distraction. And when you're capable of going and focusing and the only entrance into a field, right? It's become much more competitive of field to enter into since I entered. And as things get more competitive, it becomes more and more ridiculous. You've got to optimize everywhere. You've got to really cover your bases. I don't have an answer. Well, sort of sure. Yeah, it's probably been a gradual process with a lot of causes. So one of the things I know that you've been tinkering with recently, and I was actually reading one of your blog posts right before this, is AI. And the blog post I was reading was about creating video editing tools using AI. But obviously, that is the hot space at the moment. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about like, what you've learned in building that tooling, and what you're seeing generally with AI. So to back up a bit, I don't remember the dates, but I did join as the first engineer at a music video generation Mm. startup. It was called Triller. And at the time, our main- this was many years ago. Yeah, many years ago, 2015, I think. But don't quote me right. on that. Way before oh. ChatGPT. Yes, exactly. And so we actually used machine learning in order to algorithmically generate our music videos. So we did face detection. We did music information retrieval, which you can use an audio library and detect the rhythm or the beats of a song. And so what we did is we basically cut up a set of videos that you use this input. And on the other side, the output, we generated a music video. And so this took off. We topped the app store. We were beating another startup that was competitive with us at the time called Musical.ly, since become TikTok. So fast forward seven years or whatever it's been, eight years. And the vision of what I originally wanted to build back then has become much closer to being possible. The tools in retrieving information from video and audio have gotten really good. And so as a developer, one of the things that really excites me is new tools and the potential for new tools. And so right now, you name a type of input that was previously very difficult to work with. And increasingly, you can get out text, you can get out very structured information that is relatively right. And so I spent the past six months exploring what could be possible directions to build things with there. I mean, a lot has happened in six months is my first thought, right? Like the state of AI tooling and developer platforms has been moving at such a rapid pace. I'm curious to hear like what your approach was when you started and what's changed for you in the last six months actually trying to build something in the space. So when I started, there was very much a shortage of GPUs. And traditionally, I've focused on cloud-based development, deployed to AWS, deployed to DigitalOcean. But looking at the prices for GPU instances, it's very expensive very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I've always had a decent NVIDIA GPU and a Linux machine. And so the very first thing I did is set up my Linux machine desktop and get a decent GPU. And from there start downloading and working with models and see what it's like to work with models in general. There's something about renting an instance on a cloud provider 
that just gives me anxiety, right? Every time I'm not using that machine, I'm wasting money. Since I started, there's a great platform called Modal, which will let you do basically serverless GPU development. You can write your Python application. It will run in remotely on a great GPU instance and really will give you a great feedback. But when I started, that wasn't a possibility. And as I've gone through and as I've worked with everything, there's been a few very amazing developments. One of the big things that was out when I started was Stable Diffusion, which is this application. It's a model, a model where you create a text input and then out the other end, you get an image that's generated using a diffusion model. And when you look at the images that are generated from that, they tended to have a vibe that just kind of seemed a little bit off. Well, I'm Sammy Valley. Yes, exactly. And so since then, there's kind of been this ecosystem of people who are extending those models, creating what are called LoRa models. And they're creating specifically trained styles there's a site, it's a little bit in NSFW in general called civet.ai. And there you can find models that have been trained and adjusted to do any sort of style. And you get a bit more away from that uncanny valley, but you can definitely see the progression. One of the issues though, with all of these models is that generally speaking, we don't know where the data comes from. There are very few exceptions, but usually they're just trained on a giant corpus of potentially stolen data, potentially copyright data. Effectively, whatever they can find on the internet. However they can get it, yes. And there are implications for that. Again, very open-ended question. Don't necessarily have an answer for anybody. How did that kind of like coalesce into this video editor project? Basically, one thing that I like to do, whenever I have a giant question, right? What are the implications for generative AI? What are the implications for this new pattern that we're seeing culturally? You can hypothesize about it, right? You can build up a model in your head. Oh, because this model exists, people are going to use it to create this and it's going to devalue this place over here. Or you can just get your hands on it and start working with it, right? And after having worked with it, do I have more answers? No. Do I have stronger questions? Yes. And so I think you build up a perspective of what the capabilities are of these systems, who the players are within the space, and what the potential outcomes and what the potential long-term enduring competitive advantages will be. That's a little bit weirder. There's so much, I don't know, like blathering, for lack of a better term, about the risks and potential of AI, right? Mm-hmm. Having gone into the depths that you did, and, and I'll say that like even messing with your own models on a GPU is more depth than most people have with any kind of AI. Having gone to that level of depth, like, are you more optimistic or more pessimistic about what this is going to, to cause? Yeah, so I think there's a couple big potential scary things, right? And let's start with the scary things. One of the big ones, right, that's very much being sold everywhere is that once we have all the training data, once we've accumulated all the data and trained the perfect model, we'll no longer need humans for creative input. And there's not much to do if that's going to be the case, right? Like your economic value is rendered zero for everybody. Okay, great. (laughs) Like, what do we do from that? 
But the other side is maybe this is similar to self-driving cars. For the past five years, we've been five years away from cars being able to drive themselves. And now there are isolated cases of it happening, but there's this whole big thing with GM where they were actually having people intervene and drive the cars. And I don't have a good answer there, right? Like we can totally glue things together and we can make new products, but I don't know how good it's going to get, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if me as a software developer, my main companion is going to be a chat generating output. <laughs> it's not very optimistic, but flipping over to the good side, right? Let's just say we don't have a super model that dominates all of human existence. I think there's plenty of opportunity for us to focus on building tools to make human lives better mm-hmm. in whatever definition we have of better. So like the things that excite me right now, the potentials for robotics, Mm-hmm. One of the things that I see right now, which is wild and a, a great example of incentives over a longer term, is like deaths from car crashes have dropped if you're inside of a car. Mm-hmm. If you're a pedestrian or you're a bicyclist, however, they've gone up. And because we've focused on the safety of cars, we haven't so much focused on the safety of pedestrians and cyclists. And I think this sort of technology gives us the potential to have a place in a few years where we have zero pedestrian deaths and zero cyclist deaths. And so the way that we have to think about the world and what the potential is, we really kind of have to completely rethink everything. And so I think it's a very exciting time to rethink the negative parts of human existence and think about how these tools might eliminate them potentially. But yeah, that's a bit pie in the sky as it most is. One of the things you're dancing around here is like the trolley problem, right? Of Especially with the self-driving car or even the car example of who do you protect? Who do you prioritize? Who gets to decide that? Whose values infuse the values of the AI? And I loved science fiction as a kid. And so I've read countless books about all the different angles that this can go down. But you're probably right that like there is not a clear answer at the moment. You know, it's just going to happen one way or another. And we're kind of along for the ride in some ways. Yeah. So going back to my childhood, one of the things that was really exciting to me was this idea that all I needed was this CD-ROM with Linux on it, right? And then I had all the tools that I needed to build any world that I wanted to build. And right now, the narrative is unless you have billions of dollars to train a model and you have the suite of expertise you are outside of the club. You're an outsider. And so there's actually a term used of GPU poor or GPU rich. So unless you have access to a cluster that's worth $100 million, you're a GPU poor. And so you're incapable of participating in this experiment for the future. And so that feels a challenge. It feels like a call to action in general of you're going to limit the mass of humanity from participating in this experiment, I have to be there, right? I have to be participating in this experiment. And so I think in that respect, you can be optimistic because you can say, you know what? No, those giant pools of capital and those professionals, they're not going to win. It's going to be the rest of us who are going to win in this technological experiment. And so there is no kind of obvious thing to do, but all of us should be exploring what I would say. 
is any of this part of your book? Like, I know that you've thought a lot about how AI and art and coding intersect. I'm guessing the timeline didn't quite line up with the popularity of stuff like ChatGPT. No, it, it didn't at all. And thinking about it and thinking about how they come together, I think artists are, again, especially in this great place where you get to steer the great things about culture, right? Mm -hmm. You get to be very deliberate about the things that you create and contribute to the collective, right? And as an artist, there's a bit of vulnerability and a bit of naivety that you just have to bring. You can't be putting yourself out there and be genuine and expect to have an optimal outcome every time. And I think admitting to yourself that you don't know and still trying anyways is a very empowering practice. And I also skateboard. And one of the things at the skate park that I think divides the people, right, is am I willing to eat shit? Am I willing to fall down and slam yep. and get back up and try again? And like, when you go to the skate park and somebody's trying to drop in for on a ramp for the first time, everybody stops and everybody watches because they know this is the time when you get to decide whether or not you're going to be in the club or not. If you drop in and you slam and you get up and you try it again, it like everybody's happy, right? You, you've officially done it. You've officially become a part of the club. You're officially a skateboarder for life. And so I think it's the same thing with technology, right? You've got to slam and you've got to keep going. That's really interesting. So do you see environments in the tech world right now that you feel are creating that kind of like positive side of a skate park, right? Where like once you're in, people will probably support you and help you improve and watch out for you when you crack your head. Yeah, hopefully you don't crack your head or at least you're wearing a helmet. So yeah. I think that for me, the open source ecosystem has always been that. And there's a few places right now that are really doing that. I think Hugging Face is a great example of a community that is really just trying and building stuff and very much a culture of the GPU pores. And so there is a bit of a social network there. But the increasingly, I think it's you have to discover these people. And the way that you discover it is by being public about what you're doing, right? And you build up your network of people. I think one of the things that was took me a while to learn is you can choose whose respect you want. You can choose who you want as an audience. And going out, and one of the things that's really popular right now is to try to build as big of an audience as possible, right? I want to increase the numbers. Having a smaller audience of especially capable people or especially influential people can be much more empowering, especially if they believe in your message more generally. And there's that mutually assured empowerment. I was actually talking to a friend about that recently, that it feels like my personal journey and maybe more generalized to the internet as a whole has gone through this cycle that started with very niche, very tight-knit communities ballooned into these massive social networks where you can have a public following. And now there's kind of a pullback towards these more intimate kind of groups. And what you're describing is like, it's been my experience as well. Like you and I have both worked as developer evangelists or advocates, right? And like often part of that role is having a public following. And I spent a lot of time on that many years ago. 
But now I spend most of my time in smaller groups with people where I have a high degree of trust and context, right? And then it does yeah. seem like that's the direction of these types of communities. I'm curious, like, if your experience in developer advocacy and evangelism and, you know, DevRel, like, yep. are there implications for that change in audience building for that field? Because a lot of the folks who listen to this are, are DevRel folks. Yeah, so there's a couple things. So DevRel, as a role for me, is not about me. DevRel as a role is about empowering everybody else. It's about highlighting how amazing the work of everybody else is. And I don't like to focus on myself when it comes to DevRel. So I haven't focused on, let me optimize this audience. And when I was doing the role, I never focused on myself. I looked for the people out there building things and I wanted to highlight their stories. At the same time, I also wanted to make their lives better, right? So I think the role of DevRel is very complicated, right? To do it well, to do it in a way that the business sees the value, and to do it in a way where you build your reputation and build your marketability. Like those are kind of three different values and three different systems. And really, everything is about the trade-offs between all three of those. And so, yeah, marketing yourself, it's great. It's not necessarily the thing that you're supposed to be doing. I agree. But also to play devil's advocate, is there an argument to be made that if you have a large audience, you have greater opportunities to highlight the work of people in your community? So I think that that gets to a greater question of what you're doing. Are you building a media platform? Because that sounds like a media platform to me. That doesn't sound like empowering the lives of developers and making developers more effective at their jobs and helping developers get their next promotion. And so I think your definition of what you want and what you're pursuing matters. And I think a lot of us are very vague about our definitions about what we want and what matters to us. And so if you take a step back and you say, no, I want this platform because I can take this platform with me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually, right? If you say, no, I want to empower these developers, can you take that with you? Is that an enduring asset, the value you've created for these developers? That's not a very good personal business decision, right? And then the other one is showing business value. Just because you show business value doesn't mean you generated it. And so there's a whole wormhole of narratives that you can create. Is there room in your mind for artist developer advocates. And what I mean by that is I saw a tweet you shared from Lizzie over at Twilio yep. about her getting to spend a good chunk of her job tinkering and building things and experimenting. And that was one of my favorite parts of being a developer evangelist as well. In many ways, it feels like the field has moved towards a much more business ROI and quantified metrics direction and away from that tinkering. Mm -hmm. Do you see opportunities for that mindset still? Like, I don't know. Yeah, so I think there's a fundamental property of creative fields. So the very first question you should have is, is software development fundamentally creative or is it not? And for me, it, it is 100% creative. 
And I've seen that over and over again. It is not just an implementation of a set of features. There's so many trade-offs and so many decisions you can make. And so it really is a question of what is the value system of the organization for which you inhabit? And are you going to let it dictate your values or are you going to communicate your own set of values and argue for them? And so I think the default and the easy is to focus on metrics and to say, we hired you to do a job. Your job is to get us an audience. Marketing will take over after that and sales will close those leads versus fundamentally my role is to make the product exciting and empowering for people. And to make it something that they want to associate themselves with, something they want to leave their current job for to be able to use this tool or to be able to be a part of this group of people building a thing. And so I think creative work and creative output is not necessarily linear. And so you can do 10 blog posts about a topic and then one of them can blow up and you can say, oh, wow, this thing really resonated. I did not expect it to resonate. And I think that Being surprised by what works and being surprised by what doesn't work is a fundamental property of any creative endeavor. You think you're very smart and you have a good idea for what is going to work and what's going to be amazing and you release it and you realize nobody cares. And then you do something that's really dumb according to your worldview and you release it and it explodes and everybody loves it and you just question yourself and you question everything. And so I think fundamentally your output as this person who gets to be communicating with people, who gets to be around all these amazing people building things, helping to build companies, your role isn't a linear output. It is like combining to make more, combining to be more and make. If you were in the shoes of one of the DevRel people listening to this, how would you make that argument to a CMO or a CTO or whatever that doesn't do that work themselves and probably doesn't understand it very well. Yeah, so it is a scary thing, especially for leadership, right? The extent to which leadership is comfortable with ambiguity really tells me how good that leadership is. Because if you think that you've solved or you think that your plan is good, you're not creating space for the really amazing things to happen. And really having an effective demo that you do that was a whim, having an effective blog post, like having some feedback for a product or fixing some part of the sign up loop. It really is just a consistent set of outputs that eventually you find that hook and then it snowballs from there. I think it's a philosophy maybe, right? Like I get it though. Like it makes a lot of sense. My experience is reinforce what you are saying on a personal level. I think making the argument to someone in leadership who doesn't understand it is incredibly difficult and probably a a frequent reason for the disconnect between more metrics-oriented business leaders and DevRel people who understand what you're saying implicitly, but don't know how to quantify it in a way that other people can understand. That's great. So Let's stay there because I hear you and I think it's a bit important to kind of leave people with some tools and not just say, ah, leadership shouldn't be terrible. Uh, That would be nice. Yeah. (laughs) So I think one of the things that is terrifying for anybody, again, repeating it, is to say, I don't know. And so what's really at the root of this is I've hired you. You're the expert. 
you should know what to do and execute, right? I want to put you in a box and I want that box to output the results that I need. And so I think if you can agree, look, this is a fundamentally creative endeavor. I am going to do this pace of output. And I agree to this pace of output, but I don't know what's going to work especially well and what isn't is the beginning of an agreement of how can I be held accountable and not just be allowed to run and play with technology all day. Fundamentally, you need to be bringing the business more money, more revenue, right? And that is a very difficult thing to do, especially with developers, because they don't want to hear your sales pitch. Again, what do developers want? They want tools to go explore with, to create new things with. They want to go and make things that weren't possible before. And so the question is, how do you communicate that the things that your company currently has are tools to make things that weren't previously possible? And so I think a lot of that is leaning into the narrative and thinking, what what changes could we make? How could we do this? And the other thing is talk, have conversation. Like you don't wait, have frequent conversations. When people have conversations frequently, there starts to be an established trust. And so just just have those conversations more often if you can. Yeah, that's great. I would love to end on the note of talking about education again. Do you have a computer science degree out of curiosity? I don't. Do you have a college degree at all? No. How did you actually get your first job? Very good question. So it starts with my education. When I was in middle school, I actually got a scholarship to a very fancy private school. And there I started actually doing my computer science education. I started learning Turbo Pascal. And my teacher at the time was amazing. Our entire computer lab was running Linux. And the next year, another amazing computer science teacher in high school. And I just love the idea that everybody was contributing to make a more valuable ecosystem, right? To me, that was incredible. We could all give and take into this ecosystem. And by doing so, it only got better, right? And since then, there's been literally trillion dollar companies built upon the work of this group of people just volunteering to contribute. And so by the time I was 18, I was actually totally burnt out on technology. I had been like very fully focused. And so I actually went and lived in the rainforest. And so I lived on the border of Costa Rica and Panama for a year. And then farmed, tried to hike the Appalachian Trail, traveled a bit. And then I came back and I started building a travel website. And the travel website blew up a couple of times, got featured on the front page of Dig a few times, which was an ancient website. And then just writing articles, I eventually got a job at a local company. And that local job, I think I started at $30,000 a year, which was atrocious at the time. But by the end of the year, I was making $80,000. And I helped grow that company from like 12 million to 28, $30 million a year. And so I learned, this is how a business works, this is how business grows. And I sat right next to the person doing it. Fantastic answer. I think what you're describing is something that I actually hear from a lot of students that we work with. Because there is this prescribed linear path into the industry now, it is easy to kind of get jaded and burnt out. And 
different people find different ways to get excited about it again. And sometimes it's out of necessity, right? Because people yep. need money to live, but sometimes they find communities or passion projects or whatever else that kind of ignites that like curiosity again. Um, thinking back on your whole journey and kind of like going through those computer science classes, which it sounds like we're probably forward thinking, even for what a lot of people learn now, are there ways that you would want to bring more of this artist's mindset into that classroom? Like how would you shape CS education with your philosophy in mind? Yeah, so I think it's kind of this discipline wherein you have a set of tools. The tools are computer science, right? Like we literally have data structures, we have programming languages, your software either fundamentally works or it doesn't. And there is a very steep learning curve in general. I tried probably six or seven times to learn how to program starting with C++ and C. And trying was a very valiant effort, but it just didn't stick. And I think what you need to do is you need to give yourself the space to fall. You need to give yourself the space to do things that don't count, right? Like, oh, I just changed a line on this program. That's it. That's actually amazing. That's, that is how you start to model in your head how programs actually work. And so I think the focus on grading, on rigor, rather than what would you like to do, is really kind of the beginning of the problem. Because there's this abstract requirement out of you. You need to do the work, turn in the grade, and be graded. Versus what's interesting to you? Skateboarding? Oh, build a skateboard robot. What's interesting to you? Painting? Oh, build a painting robot that gets paint all over the place. You have a much better motivation to keep getting back up when you have that end goal of what you want to build. And I think one of the things that's tough as a younger person or a beginner is you don't know what's possible. And really, the answer is literally anything. You just need to stumble your way there. And having the benefit of experience, you just get a little bit more confident every time that, oh, yeah, literally anything is possible. Yeah, I love that. I've been sent to you with a demand from one of my coworkers. Okay. So my colleague, Nick, is a somewhat obsessive birder. He loves birds. And he asked me to ask you, A, like, do you still do anything with your bird, whatever, like, object recognition system that you built? And then also, what is your favorite bird? It's his second question. <laughs> so my favorite bird is by far the crow. So for anybody who doesn't know, I did a 2018 talk on birding with Python and machine learning. And so I built a robot having no experience. Robot is a bit of a stretch. There's a box with a webcam on it and a NVIDIA device with a GPU. And it would detect birds. And my goal at the time was actually to create a video game for crows. And after having left out my camera, I didn't get any crows because there wasn't any crows in my area. I got a bunch of grackles, which look similar to crows. And I got a bunch of squirrels. And mm -hmm. for anybody who's ever seen Mark Rover's video about squirrels and his squirrel maids, they just dominate it in general. <laughs> and so, yeah, as far as still doing the bird camera stuff, no, I've switched to a bit of a different approach right now. Mm -hmm. And I started working on a self-driving skateboard ramp. And that is kind of the current skunk works project, if you will. 
Cool. That's awesome. Nick's favorite bird is the loon. He has loon paraphernalia everywhere. In fact, on this old laptop, there's like a little loon sticker in the corner there. There you go. Non sequitur, I know. But this has been great. The question I end on with all of my guests is, if there's anyone in the world of tech, art, science, just some aspirational figure that you wish you could take to lunch for a couple hours and pick their brain, who comes to mind? There's this Japanese artist, Daito Manabe, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name properly, but he's done a bunch of incredible work. He's an amazing software developer, but also a choreographer and a musician. And yeah, hopefully you can share his website or share yeah. some of his work because it's incredible. And a, an amazing example of a person who has done their work to reflect their own personal value system. That's fantastic. I will... Google him seriously and include a link here. Thank you so much for your time, Kirk. This has been a fascinating conversation for me. I really hope everyone enjoyed listening. Definitely follow along for more episodes if you like this kind of thing. But we'll include links on where to find Kirk's book and blog and other online presence. But happy hacking, everyone. Thanks, everybody. And yeah, feel free to reach out if you've got any questions. Happy to chat whenever. Fantastic. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for Developer Education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking.